Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online and all of those of you meeting um, together at one of our uh, campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, Northwest Calgary, and uh, here at Central Campus. And I just want to say thank you, thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. Thank you for stepping out and investing not only in the next generation, but also in the lives of all those in our sphere of influence who are seeking God and who need the Lord. And, uh, you know, generous people are joyful people. Uh, and I believe that's one of the reasons that so many people who are new to our church or are visiting us uh, often comment that they sense the, the presence and the joy of the Lord among us. Uh, research has shown that Jesus was right when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And one study, for example, discovered that people who are consistently generous uh, on the whole are happier, are healthier, and have a greater sense of purpose in life than those who, are, um, uh, who aren't generous or who only give occasionally. But here's the thing. If we are going to be generous on a consistent basis, if we're going to be, uh, make generosity a normal part of our lifestyle, then we're going to need to have margin in our time and also in our resources to be generous. And that is really only going to become a reality to the extent that we learn what it means to be content. And that's what I want to talk to you about. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And so in this message, I want us to learn from the Apostle Paul what it means to be content, what it looks like practically in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis in the 21st century. And so I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 and to stand and to join me in reading a portion of this chapter together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the God of peace will be with you. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your direction in our lives, personally and as a church. We thank you, Lord, for the life of Paul, the training 
the discipline that he went through, Lord, um, in order to come to that place of contentment. May we learn from his life, his teaching here in the scriptures. May our mind be open to you. May our heart be soft to receive what you would teach us. And may we have the courage to respond in the way you'd have us to. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. May be seated. Not too long ago, Boston College did a study in which they explored how happy and how content people were who are extraordinarily wealthy. And what they found was that people with an average net worth of $78 million are still discontented, they're still unhappy, in fact, they're quite anxious and, and feeling financially insecure. In order to feel secure, many of them indicate that they need at least 25% more money than they have. Now, I know it's mind-boggling to think that a person who has $78 million think they need at least $25 million more to feel content and financially secure. And yet, as I said a few weeks ago, most of the world looks at us. All the wealth that most of us have in comparison to them, and they find it mind-boggling to believe that we're still anxious about our finances and generally unhappy and discontented in life. You see, what we often see so clearly in the lives of others, we're so often blind to in ourselves. The reality is most of us believe that the secret to lasting joy, security, and contentment is just one more purchase away. Just one more promotion away. Just one more trophy away. Just one more ecstatic experience away. Or just one new relationship away. And consequently, some people spend their entire life plagued by a state of discontent. They're not content with their lifestyle, the size of their bank account, or where they live. They aren't content with their work their position, or their pay, or who they work for, or who they work with. They're disappointed in their friends, or their spouse doesn't measure up, or their children aren't meeting their expectations. So let me ask you, how content are you? Now, if you want to kind of get a rough idea, think about how much you complain. How much you grumble and harbor feelings of envy or jealousy. Now, don't raise your hand, but when was the last time you complained or grumbled about your looks, about your finances, your boss, your marriage, your children, your parents? How about those in-laws, the weather, your church, your small group, your pastor, 
Thought I'd slide that one in. <laughs> Most of us struggle with what it means to be content and to live a contented life. And so let's learn from the life and the teachings of Paul here in Philippians 4. And I want to focus on two um, uh, major areas. First of all, what contentment is, and secondly, how we can learn from Paul to be content. So let's begin. What does it mean to be content? Well, fundamentally, contentment is to come to that place in your life when you can genuinely say, I'm satisfied. I have all that I need. In verse 11, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's saying, I may not like the circumstances that, I, that I'm in, but I'm satisfied because in Christ, I have all that I need to be content. In Philippians 1.21, he said, For to me to live is Christ. I have all I need in him. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying here, I've learned to be complacent about the situation that I find myself in or to care less about who God created me to be or to care less about doing what he's called me to do with what he's given to me. The reality is sometimes there is a discontentment that wells up inside of us that's from the Holy Spirit. It's a holy kind of discontentment that leads us to say, I can't stand this anymore. This isn't right. This can't go on. I have to do something about this. And we step out in obedience to God's prompting in our lives. And we begin to pray. We begin to serve. We begin to give. And God uses us as individuals, but also together as a church, to impact and transform lives and accomplish His redemptive purposes in our city, in our nation, and in our world, like we heard about last week. The Apostle Paul was anything but complacent. In fact, quite frankly, he was ambitious. I mean, look what he says a chapter early in Philippians 3, verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. But please note, the prize that he's pursuing wasn't about advancing himself or his agenda. It wasn't about him getting more glory or recognition for himself. It was fundamentally about living for Jesus, introducing people to Jesus, primarily making the invisible Christ visible for all to see in and through his life. So make no mistake, church, contentment is not apathy. It's not laziness. It's not sitting back in the shade and drinking lemonade and saying, I'm content and I don't care about anyone else. It has nothing to do. It's not settling for mediocrity. Rather, it's coming to that place of inner freedom that says, I'm satisfied. In Christ, I have all that I need to be content and to be at peace in my present circumstances. Now, when Paul says, I have learned to be content, he's indicating that this is actually a process. Contentment didn't come to him all in one day. Rather, he learned to be content. In fact, some translations talk about he trained to be content over time. And so must we. So how can we learn to be content? 
Well, here in our scripture lesson, Paul explains that contentment isn't something that you seek. Rather, it's something that comes to you when you focus on two things. When you, first of all, put your trust in Jesus, and secondly, when you think like Jesus. Let me unpack that a little bit. First of all, contentment comes to those who put their trust in Jesus. Look at verse 6. He writes, do not be anxious about anything. Paul is touching on one of the key killers of contentment. It's fear. It's anxiety. We struggle being content because we're afraid. We fear our basic needs aren't going to be met. We fear that there won't be enough money to pay the bills, particularly if we get to be too generous. We fear that if we don't pursue a high-status career, or we don't hit the ball out of the park in our career, or if we decide to live a more simple lifestyle, well, people won't respect us. In fact, they will look down on us. Kevin Miller points out that cultural anthropologists tell us that according to their research, North Americans are not obsessed with money itself. What we're really interested in is what money communicates to those around us. In our culture, more money, possessions, and a high-status career proves that I'm worth something, that I'm competent, that I work hard, that I'm successful. Now, if we believe and embrace our culture's definition of that and the values of our culture, then, says Kevin Miller, no wonder we're never satisfied and we want more money and high-status positions. No wonder we fear not having enough. No, no wonder we resist being generous. Because if we don't have enough of the things that our culture says makes a person important and successful, then we risk people concluding that we're incompetent failures. And who wants that? Well, Paul speaks to our fear. Look at verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. Paul says contentment comes to those who believe their identity and their value is not found in our culture, but in Christ. Those who are convinced to the core of their being that contentment does not come from our external circumstances, it doesn't come from the position we have at work, it doesn't come from the size of our bank account or the amount of toys or wardrobe or trophies or power or fame or possessions that we have. No, true contentment comes from the Lord. It comes from those who place their trust and their hope in the Lord, those who embrace his love and his purpose for our lives. When Paul says in verse 12, I can do all th this through Christ, he's not saying I can be anything I want. 
Have you ever heard people say that? Well, you can be anything you want to be. He's not saying that. He's not even saying I can accomplish anything I want through Christ. No. He's saying I can do everything Christ asks me to do. And there is a big difference. I can do everything Christ asks me to do. And whatever he calls me to do, he will be with me and he will empower me and strengthen me to do it. But you see, that's the secret that Paul's talking about here to contentment. Contentment comes to those who trust Christ, who base their identity and their value in him rather than our culture. Those who can genuinely say, in Christ, I'm satisfied. I have all that I need. Now, Paul goes on to give us a couple of practical ways we can grow in our trust in Christ on a daily basis. He says, contentment comes to those who pray about everything and to those who are thankful in all circumstances. First of all, contentment comes to those who pray about everything. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The next time you find yourself anxious about not having enough or anxious, um, you know, feeling insecure or, or some other area of anxiety, in other words, the next time you find yourself struggling trusting Jesus, stop worrying and start praying instead. Anytime you feel a twinge of anxiety or concern kind of uh, come over you, see it as an alarm that's going on, reminding you to take it to the Lord in prayer. Now please understand, taking it to the Lord in prayer doesn't necessarily mean a three-hour prayer session. I mean, it might turn out to be that. But don't focus on the length of your prayer because sometimes if you think it needs to be a three-hour prayer, you probably won't pray. So don't focus on the length of the prayer. Focus on talking to the Lord about your fear and about your concern and leaving it with Him, trusting Him to do what you can't do. Jesus wants us to trust Him. He wants us to come to Him regardless of whether it turns out to be a three-hour prayer or a three-minute prayer. Paul was able to be content and not anxious in that prison cell because he was convinced there was someone next to him who was much greater and more powerful than his fears and his problems. He was convinced that he was loved, that he was not alone, and that his responsibility was to pray about everything and to leave the rest with the Lord. And then furthermore, Paul says here that contentment comes to those who are thankful in all circumstances. In verse 6, he challenges us to pray with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he writes, give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say give thanks for 
all circumstances because some circumstances are just plain evil and terrible. We don't give thanks for circumstances like that. But if we want to experience the peace and the contentment of God, he calls us to be thankful in all circumstances. You see, we have to make a choice. For example, we can choose to envy what others have or we can choose to be grateful for what we have. Mark Buchanan tells of a time that he joined, a worship, he joined in worship with about 100 Christians in the country of Uganda. They met in a tin roof lean-to that was set at the edge of a cornfield. The floor was dirt. The instruments were old. Some of the guitars didn't have all the strings. But boy, did they worship, he says. Then the pastor asked if anyone had anything to share. A tall, willowy woman came to the front, and she said, Oh, brothers and sisters, I love Jesus so much. And the worshipers shouted back, Tell us, sister, tell us. You know, um, just a comment. When I read that illustration, I thought, we got to do a little bit more of that here as a church. <laughs> you know, just every once in a while, you know, that's true, pastor. Preach it, pastor. You know, just a little bit of that. Just a little bit of that. You know, the... the, the <laughs> <laughs> the reality is we can't have you going on too long or this sermon's going to be really long. Uh, services over there, I understand, are three to four hours long. And you don't want that. And frankly, I don't want that. So, But you know, a little bit of interaction is a good thing. So anyways, uh, the worshipers shouted back, tell us, sister, tell us. Oh, I love him so much, she said. I don't know where to begin to tell you how good God is. Begin there, sister, begin there, they shouted back. Oh, she said, he's so good to me. I praise him all the time for how good he is to me. For three months, she said, I prayed to the Lord for shoes. And look, she lifted her skirt just a little bit and showed one of her feet and one very ordinary looking shoe covered it. Brothers and sisters, she shouted, the Lord gave me shoes. Hallelujah! And they all stood up and they shouted and clapped and praised the Lord for his goodness. But I didn't, said Mark. I was devastated. I sat there hollowed out and hammered down. For you see, in all of my life, I had not once prayed for shoes. In fact, in all of my life, I had not once thanked God for the many shoes that I have. Church, when was the last time that we thanked the Lord for our shoes? When was the last time we thanked the Lord for our clothes? For hot water, for running water, for electricity, for a warm home. When was the last time we thanked the Lord for our eardrums and the ability to hear and to enjoy music? When was the last time we thanked God for our eyes and the magnificent color-filled world that he created just for us? 
When was the last time we realized that most of what we enjoy is a gift? We can't even buy it. It's freely given to us from the hand of our gracious Heavenly Father. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, when we're thankful, we see our circumstances differently. We acknowledge that our God is perfectly good, He's perfectly just, He's perfectly powerful, and according to Romans 8.28, that in all things, our God works for our ultimate good and for His ultimate glory. When we're thankful people, we look at our lives a little different and contentment comes to us. That's the first truth that we need to learn and embrace. Contentment comes to those who put their trust in Jesus, who pray about everything and who are thankful in all circumstances. The second truth we need to learn and embrace is this. Contentment comes to those who think like Jesus. Look at verse 8 again. Paul says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. The way that you think shapes you as a person. It affects your attitudes, your emotions, and your behaviors, and how content you are in life. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, amazingly, people are often surprised to learn what their mind dwells on and what their mind is constantly exposed to eventually surfaces in their attitudes, their values, and their behaviors. Kevin Miller writes, when sexually charged images and messages are available to anyone who wants them on the internet, we should not be surprised when promiscuity goes up Sexual addictions, perversions, and marital unfaithfulness becomes common. When young women are regularly exposed to internet sites, uh, television shows, ads, and magazines featuring models who are paid outrageous sums of money to make themselves unnaturally thin and whose bodies are portrayed as being desirable that way, we should not be surprised to learn we have a generation of young women who are very discontented with the way that they look and are constantly thinking thoughts like, I'm not thin enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not desirable enough. And you know, the same is true in so many other areas of life. 
Make no mistake, the events that you attend, the materials that you read, the music you listen to, the shows and the movies you watch, the internet sites you go on, the conversations you have with friends, all of these are shaping your mind, your character, and the level of your contentment in life. Now the good news is, you can change the kind of person you are by doing what Paul says here in verse 8. And that is to deliberately expose your mind to that which is true and right. That which is pure and admirable and praiseworthy. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why reading and meditating the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures daily, is so important. Why meeting with the small group of other believers regularly is so important. Why attending worship services like this on a regular basis is so important. I mean, where else in our society are you challenged to think about what is true and right, wholesome and pure? I mean, have you ever noticed what tends to happen to people after hearing a sermon on being kind to one another? I mean, people walk out into the atrium of the campus they're attending, and as they line up for coffee or for a cookie, everyone insists the other person go first. Oh, no, no, I insist. You know, you go ahead. They go out into the parking lot. And unlike rush hour traffic, they actually invite people to cut in on them. I insist, please, go ahead. I want to apply today's sermon. Thank you. God bless you. Oh, sure, there's always a couple of people who slept through the sermon. And they're out there blowing their horns, shaking their fists, you know, telling people where to go. But isn't it true you tend to reflect whatever truth that you've been thinking about and embraced? Now, here's the thing. We're constantly bombarded with advertising that purposefully seeks to create discontentment and dissatisfaction within us. Playing on our fears, on our insecurities, playing on our greed, suggesting that we'll never be desirable without a certain brand of clothes. We'll never be happy without a certain expensive toy. Now make no mistake, our desires are not evil or wrong in themselves. In fact, our desires are from God. The problem is sin and selfishness distorts and perverts our desires. Advertisers know that if our desires are stimulated the right way, our appetite for more is engaged and our brain starts lying to us. Andy Stanley says, when our desire is stimulated, our brain becomes so focused on that one thing. And having that particular desire satisfied, that everything else fades away in insignificance. Which explains why we drive away from a clothing store convinced we must have that 
suit. And we dream about it all week until we get it. Which explains why your child will have a complete meltdown, convinced that they can't go on living unless we purchase that particular toy. Which explains why your teenager is convinced life is no longer worth living unless they're able to go to that party or unless they're able to date that certain person they're crazy about but who isn't good for them at all. That doesn't just happen to teenagers, by the way. Now, the truth is, our desires are never fully and finally satisfied. I mean, think about it. You can have an amazing filling meal. Not even two hours later, you're at the fridge, you're at the pantry, hunting for more food. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Paul gives this warning. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul says this is serious stuff. For example, in the area of money, someone once said, as long as your yearnings exceed your earnings, you're going to be in deep doo-doo. You're going to accumulate serious debt. And this is going to create all kinds of anxiety in your life and in your relationships. You see, harmful, out-of-control desires can wreak havoc in your life and even lead to evil and, I'm sorry, to ruin and destruction, unless we begin saying no to our desire for more. So how can we, in practical terms, say no to the desire for more? Paul says he learned to be content by intentionally thinking about certain things. Intentionally thinking about what's true, what's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's admirable and praiseworthy. Which implies he intentionally refused to think about or to expose his mind to anything that had the potential to lead him to ruin. Like the desire for more stuff that you don't need. Or more status or more security. And practically that means if you're struggling with materialism, for example, seriously consider limiting how much you shop. Now, this is easy for me to say because frankly, I hate shopping. I mean, give me a choice between shopping and a root canal and I'll pick shopping, of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not a masochist, but uh, it's a pretty close call. Limiting how much you shop is easy for me. It's a lot harder for those of you who have the spiritual gift of shopping. <laughs> but you see, the problem with using your free time to window shop or to check things out online 
is you are exposing yourself to an environment that's dedicated to stimulating in you a strong desire to acquire. The more you shop, the more you expose your mind to stuff you didn't even know existed up to that point in time, and therefore you didn't desire it, right? But the minute you become aware of it, well, now you need it. For example, you are perfectly happy with your cell phone. It works, does what you need it to do, until you become aware people have been lining up for two to three days to get the newest, slickest model. And so you Google it. You read up on it, all the improvements, all the upgrades, and suddenly your present phone seems like it's 100 years old and totally useless. And you, you drop it. Oh, gee. Um, you kick it. You tell it to die already because you are looking for an excuse to justify upgrading to that new phone. That is the power of awareness. So if you want to learn to be content with what you have, consider going shopping to get exactly it is what you need and then going directly home. Furthermore, I was expecting at least for a few guys in the room to say, Amen, brother. If you can preach that one, brother, yeah. Anyways. Oh, yeah. We got a long way to go, people. Anyways. <laughs> Furthermore, learn to avoid the comparison trap. The Tenth Commandment says we are not to covet or lust after what others have, including their stuff, including their money, even their spouses. Covetousness is the exact opposite of contentment. And if our mind is constantly comparing our lot in life with others, we will truly be miserable people. I believe it was Tim Keller who once said, most people aren't discontent because they have too little. It's because they believe they don't have as much as somebody else does. And see, Proverbs 14.30 speaks into that and says, a heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Be aware especially of the influence of your small group of friends in this area. If there's a lot of talk about how much people are making, talk about new homes and new toys, new wardrobe that people are buying, realize that you are in an environment that will breed discontentment in you over things, if you think about it, are not all that important in God's kingdom. Paul says if you want contentment to come to you, then intentionally limit how much you expose your mind to things or to people that stimulate the desire for more in you. And instead expose your mind to things that really matter to God. Instead of always talking with your close friends and family members, what people in our culture tend to talk about, which is, you know, new products, new purchases, recent vacations. Consider challenging your friends and family to become more aware of the needs of the people in our city, in our nation, around the world. Spending more time praying about those situations and together asking God what he would have us do 
to give to make a difference in some way. In addition, challenge your small group of friends to become more aware of the needs and the ministry opportunities to, to minister to children and to youth and to adults, uh, to people with special needs, uh, even behind the scenes here, right here in our church. And then pray together and ask God to show you what he would have you do individually, but also as a group. And when you meet together, share stories of what God's doing in that ministry. Pray together about the people in that ministry and perhaps even needs that you have related to that ministry. Now, I realize that God never intended me or any of us to take on the needs of the entire planet. But when we personally and with our small group of friends intentionally stop focusing so much on acquiring more, and instead expose ourselves to the opportunities and the needs around us and in our world, we're going to find ourselves far more able to kill the desire for more. When we are more aware of the needs and opportunities to make an eternal difference in people's lives, and then we find ourselves, for example, being tempted to pay $300 to upgrade a device that we really don't need. You see, we now think twice, realizing that the $300 that we're thinking of spending would take care of all the needs of an orphan for a year. All that to say... Trusting Jesus and thinking like Jesus means we begin to align our lives and our thoughts with those things that he's passionate about and those things that break his heart. We begin to find ways to deliberately unplug ourselves from the desire for more by canceling catalogs and curtailing our desire to acquire, by limiting how much time we surf on the net for stuff, how much time we typically devote to visiting show homes and attending car shows and all kinds of other shows that make us want what we really don't need. And instead, using that time to invest in the lives of loved ones or the lives that need the Lord or whatever. Imagine the impact that we could have if we were all to come to the place in our lives where we could say from the heart, I'm truly satisfied. And we decide to live more simply by putting a cap on our lifestyle and saying, I have all I need. And everything beyond that I'm going to invest in the kingdom of God. I mean, folks, your generosity, the commitments you've made, even to our building program, just indicates the potential that we have as a church to make a difference. That's what Paul did. And in verse 7, he essentially says, when you live like this, you're going to experience a joy a peace, a contentment that transcends all human understanding. I want to close by challenging you with a, a couple of praiseworthy thoughts that are based somewhat 
on something I read by Daryl Johnson. And the first is this, love people over things. There are only three things that you can bring with you to heaven. Your friendship with Jesus, those people that you've introduced to Jesus, and whatever you've done and invested in, in the name of Jesus. That's it. Everything else is going to burn one day. So value people over things or over self-centered accomplishments. Over the years, I've asked people for their fondest, their greatest memory in life, and it was rare to hear someone refer to a promotion at work or to deal or a deal that they closed on or a possession that they purchased. Almost always, what they shared centered around a relationship of some kind or another. And I draw that to our attention because if the quality of our relationship with God and others is going to matter most in the end, then why are we fretting so over all the symbols of success in our culture? Why are we striving so hard and losing sleep trying to impress others with our stuff, with our status, and with our typically self-centered earthly achievements. Friends, contentment comes to those who think about such things, who invest in eternal things, and work to bring glory to God rather than themselves and decide to love people over things. Secondly, seek to please Jesus rather than trying to impress others. Some of you have all that you need to live a full and satisfying life, but you're still not content. You're blessed beyond measure, and you don't even realize it. And the primary reason is, is you're still trying to get more security. You're still trying to pad the account. You're still trying to prove yourself. You get your ego gratification from being on top, from being one up on others. Somewhere along the way, you have to ask yourself, who am I really trying to impress and why? Am I so insecure that I feel worthwhile only when I'm more successful than someone else? When I'm seen as more gifted or more effective than someone else? You know, it's a great day. It's a great day when we stop competing with other people. I love the story of the young boy who said to another boy, my dad can whoop your dad. And the little guy just shrugged it off, walked away and said, big deal. My mom can whoop my dad. <laughs> it's a great day when we stop competing, when we stop trying to impress other people and just focus on pleasing Jesus. Friends, that's the secret. That's the secret to learning to be content. 
It's falling back into the arms of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm satisfied. In you, I have all that I need. Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord. Just take a moment. Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me about contentment? And Lord, what is one step you want me to make? What's one attitude, one truth that I need to embrace? What's one attitude that I need to change? What's one step I need to take? Heavenly Father, just want to thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. The forgiveness, the peace, the contentment he came to bring through his life, his death and resurrection. Lord, I want to pray for those who would have to admit today that they're so far from a life of contentment. Lord, that I pray that somehow they will have heard from you today the lies that they're leaning on, the lives that they're embracing. Values, Lord, that are so temporary. And yet it's wreaking havoc in their lives. Oh God, may they truly come to that place of trusting you fully and who you say we are. May they find their value their purpose in you. And may they very intentionally begin to um, think, to focus on that which is true and right and noble, pure and lovely, praiseworthy. I pray for all those who have just now fallen back into your arms and have said, Jesus, I am satisfied. In you, I have all I need. You're more than enough. I'd rather have you than anything. Bless them, Lord, for their obedience, their active surrendering. May they experience your peace and and contentment in a deeper and a richer way, I pray, each and every day from this day forward. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. 
For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.